Well, a very good evening to you all. Uh, welcome to the LSE, or if you're here all day anyway, welcome to the theatre. Um, I'm Tony Travers uh, from uh, the Institute of Public Affairs and the Department of Government, and I'm merely here to chair this evening. Uh, the hashtag for Twitter users is there, you can see it there, hashtag hash LSE SOPOL. And uh, the event this evening is really to hear from John Sopel about uh, his new book, If Only They Didn't Speak English, Notes from Trump's America. Now, uh, I'm going to say only a few words. I've known John for a number of years. As you will all know, many of you will know, I'm sure, uh, he has been the BBC's North America editor since uh, 2014. Um, before that, he was a BBC presenter for 16 years, working variously, variously as the cor corporation's Paris correspondent, its chief political correspondent, has hosted both the politics show and Newsnight, and a regular on hard talk, as well as a presenter and performer on a number of Radio 4 programmes. Um, the book sets out to analyse a country that he says once stood for the grandest of aspirations and is now mired in a storm of political extremism, racial division, and increasingly perverse beliefs. Just one final thing I'd say uh, before handing over to John is that it is a remarkable time in world affairs because the coincidence of radical shifts in international power, the rise of China, as a superpower, Russia's re-emergence as a more dominant player again internationally, the complexities of Europe, the arrival of uh, North Korea and its attempt to become a nuclear power, and on top of all of that, Donald Trump as President of the United States. As you say, you couldn't make it up, and I didn't. John Sopel is going to talk about his book and about all of that. Ladies and gentlemen, John Sopel. Uh, first of all, Tony, thank you very much indeed. This is a first. I have spent a broadcasting career introducing you for your expertise on everything about government, and uh, now you've introduced me, so that's a delight for me. Thank you very much. And all of you, thank you so much uh, for coming uh, this evening. Um, I'm going to canter through some of the themes of the book, and maybe we'll have a little discussion about Donald Trump as well. Um, the idea of the name of the book... Um, if only they didn't speak English. We, I, I was covering some pretty grim story, and I think it was the shootings in Orlando at uh, the Pulse nightclub when Omar Martin had killed about 29 people. It was horrible. And, uh, and I was endlessly asked on air, so surely this means there's going to be a radical change in gun laws in the United States of America. And I just want to say, nope, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and there was just an assumption that any time that something crazy happened, then of course that what Americans would do is change their gun laws, except that's to misunderstand America. And I was talking to my bureau chief about this, and he, he said to me, you know, if only they didn't speak English, we'd treat it as a foreign language. And I thought, great book title. I'm stealing that. And so what it tries to do is to go through various different themes uh, and look at how America is very, very different. From the shallow and superficial, you know, the one thing I got I, and I've tra I travelled in America a huge amount. I've, you know, been there for work and I've been there on family holidays. I even had a midlife crisis on Harley Davidson across the west coast of America, which was fantastic, by the way. And, um, and so I thought I knew the country well. And then you, suddenly you get to know the people a bit. 
And you realise it's very different. People are much more courteous people. Uh, there's a civility. There is an almost old-fashioned uh, respect among people that maybe you wouldn't find uh, in the UK anymore. The young people in my office call me Sir in Washington. I've been called a lot of things in my career at the BBC, <laughs> and Sir is not one of the words that's ever been used uh, before. But, and, you know, I was talking about guns and kind of what happened in Orlando. I mean, last week I was sent down to Texas... Uh, to cover the floods there. I'm waiting to go through security at Reagan National Airport, which is kind of great inner-city airport in the middle of Washington, D.C. And uh, the guy in front of me is held up, and I think, obviously, he's, you know, he's left a bottle of water in his uh, bag, and uh, they call for a policeman to come along, and they pull out a magazine of ammunition in his hand baggage. And what was kind of in- interesting about that was, you know, I think I would have been, you know, I have been dying at that moment. If, and he just said, oh, gee to the policeman. Yeah, I thought I'd, I thought I'd use that am- magazine of ammunition up. Yeah, you can't remember whether you fired off those bullets or not. Um, and I, I was in a... I was in a... I was 12 years earlier. I was in New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina. And, um, and there was nowhere to stay because there was no running water. There was, uh, there was no fuel to be had. Um, there was no electricity in the city. So... One end, our enterprising producer managed to find and source a tour bus, and it had been used by the, uh, by the group Earth, Wind and Fire just before us, and it had a, a huge circular velvet bed at the back and mirrored ceiling tiles. You just imagined what had gone on in that particular place. But our, but our driver said, you know, and there was a lot of looting going on in New Orleans at the time, he said, don't worry, if anything happens, we'll be fine. And he opens up his attaché case, and there are two revolvers and a mountain of ammunition, and you think, that's great. And my producer, seeing that there was also this whole pile of tablets in there, so he wanted to change the subject away from him talking about guns, and said, uh, what's the medicine for? And he said, I'm bipolar. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> You're going to sleep really well tonight. Um, and whether it be guns... Or whether it be God, and there's a chapter on religion in the book, because one of the things, you know, I've, I've covered politics here for years and years and years, and, you know, you remember maybe Alistair Campbell when he was Tony Blair's press secretary saying we don't do God. We've had Tim Farron resign uh, because he, uh, after the election, not because he did terribly, but because he said he felt he couldn't reconcile being a person of religion whilst also being... Um, uh, a politician as well and kind of what I found in America when I went there was that you couldn't be a politician without doing religion and parading it very publicly indeed and you've seen all the attack ads that happen on American television where you know this guy's a total sleazeball he will let paedophiles out of prison he will let murderers out of prison vote for me I approve this message Um, I'll I'll just this is from um, Marco Rubio Uh, This is a paid television ad uh, just before the Iowa caucus running in Iowa. Our goal is eternity. The purpose of our life is to cooperate with God's plan. To those who much has been given, much is expected, and we will be asked to account for that, whether your treasures are stored up on earth or in heaven, to accept the free gift of salvation offered to us by Jesus Christ. Can you imagine any British politician, if we were allowed to say that, saying that? I just don't think um, it is possible. Government. You know, the British response tends to be, what is the government going to do about it? And the American response seems to be, what has this got to do with uh, government? Americans like not that much government, but like to project quite a lot of power. 
And I, I travelled with uh, Barack Obama on Air Force One, which was amazing experience to do. I mean, you know, the quickest way into Stansted Airport uh, to central London is definitely travelling with the President. Osprey helicopters were there at the foot of Air Force One. We got off. 25 minutes after the wheels touched ground, I was in Regent's Park. That's the way to travel. Um, there was a great story about John Major when I was a political correspondent, and it was after the IRA had mortar-bombed uh, Downing Street, and, the, and the, I don't know whether people of my age will remember that it was terrible snow on the ground, it was all iced up, and the next day was the Young Conservatives Conference in Scarborough, and in normal circumstances, with that much snow and ice on the road, uh, he would have said, I'm not going. But because the IRA had mortar-bombed Downing Street, of course, it would have looked like a victory for the terrorists had he not gone. So off he went from Huntingdon, his constituency, uh, to go up to Scarborough, and after about 70 or 80 miles, this being John Major, he decided it was time to stop at a little chef for a full English. And they did, and they were the only people in there. And, uh, you know, so just Major and his bodyguards. And uh, this brummy lorry driver pulls in, walks in and sees his special interest. He goes, it'd be a great day to hold up a little chef, wouldn't it? And as the four bodyguards reached for their Heckler and Koch revolvers, John Major perked up and went and said, not as good as you might think. And, <laughs> and the purpose of this story is, uh, the reason I tell it is, can you imagine being at a cafe, a roadside cafe on an interstate, where the president might have stopped for coffee, and you being unaware that the president was inside. There would be 50 motorcycle outriders, there would be a convoy of 40 vehicles, there would have been helicopters hovering overhead. They do a lot of projection uh, of power. And obviously, all that power uh, is now in the hands of the 45th president of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump, who can be outspoken and candid in his views. I think we can just play a little uh, clip, can we? Thank you. Um, This is a a news conference. Where are you from? Uh, BBC. It's a good line. Impartial, free and fair. Mr. President, just like CNN. On the travel ban, on the travel ban, would you accept that that was a good example of Smooth running a government. Yeah, I do. Why do you? Let me tell you about it. Wait, wait. I know who you are. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> take it out, take it out. We have a very Okay, that was... Um, so, so, I suppose when I started my journalistic career that I had thought it would be unlikely that I'd ever find myself in the East Room of the White House uh, asking the President a question, uh, let alone uh, going toe-to-toe with the President. And it was the most extraordinary day. But everything about this presidency is extraordinary. I'm going to stop in a minute, but, I mean... I think I've got got all these favourite moments of some of the kind of, you know, I can't quite believe this, where your jaw kind of almost hits the floor. No, he hasn't, has he? And I was in a restaurant in Georgetown, and uh, we got a call, uh, I got a call saying, have you seen his latest tweet? And I said, no. And he said, it's it's that Nigel Farage uh, should become Britain's next ambassador to the United States of America, which you kind of just think about it for a moment. There are so many things that are wrong about that. I mean, I have nothing to do with Nigel Farage, but, you know, like the American president should choose who our ambassador should be. Um, I ring up the uh, British embassy in Washington and say to them, uh, you know, what's your reaction? They say, way above our pay grade, can't possibly answer that question. You're going to have to talk to Downing Street. Uh, it's now 9.30, 10 o'clock in the evening, so 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning in London. I, so I, I, say to the, I ring up the switchboard at number 10. I say, can you wake the duty press officer for me? I want to speak to him. 
duty press officer groggily comes on the line and I read what he said and he went, oh, fuck, he hasn't, has he? <laughs> my, my problem for Radio 4 <laughs> is that I have to work out how I'm going to translate that. I said there seemed to be a shocked reaction in Downing Street. Um, and then we've just had this extraordinary summer. And my, and my past years as a lobby correspondent when I worked at Westminster was that you took the summer off. That was the time, you know, if you're Laura Kunzberg, you just disappear for August unless there are exceptional circumstances. When we got to the end of this August, I decided I'd make a list. And I won't go through that. I suspect I won't have time to go through the whole list. But anyway, I'm going to have a go. Uh, he hired a new communications director called Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, the press secretary, Sean Spicer, uh, quits in protest the next day, says he's happy, but I know he's fulminating. Um, Scaramucci then gives an obscene interview uh, to uh, New Yorker magazine. Uh, Eddie Mayer from the PM programme uh, described what he asked Steve Bannon to do as uh, an act of double-jointed self-fellation. Um, <laughs> Uh, Trump fires his chief of staff, the hapless Reince Priebus. He is abandoned at Andrews Air Force Base, has to find his own way home. Uh, Donald Trump hires a new one, General Kelly, who was head of Homeland Security. On Kelly's first day, the president fires the new communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, who has lasted just 10 days, less long than it takes for a pint of milk to go off. Um, he hires a new comms director, his fourth in seven months. He publicly shames his attorney general numerous times, but Jeff Sessions clings on. He loses the health care bill that he promised would be so easy to change. He publicly lashes the three Republicans who voted against it several times. He bans transgender people from the military via Twitter without telling the military. And military chiefs say, forget it, we don't take orders from tweets. There is a chain of command. He makes a political speech to scouts aged between 11 and 18, and he claims the scout leader rang him to congratulate him on the greatest speech ever made. The scouts leader says there was no such call and issues a statement apologising about the president's behaviour and misjudged address. The president also says the president of Mexico rang to congratulate him on his border policies. The Mexican president says no such call ever took place. The White House denies the President is a liar, but can't explain the President's claims. <laughs> he takes days to sign a bipartisan sanctions bill against Russia and then criticise Congress for making him sign it. Um, he thanks Vladimir Putin for expelling hundreds of American diplomats. He encourages police officers to rough up suspects, at one point saying, you know, when you're putting them in the car, and you know how you cover their head? Don't do that anymore. Um, after a furore from police chiefs who say that is unacceptable, down, uh, the White House clarifies it was a joke. Uh, he publicly shames the Republican Senate leader, whom he needs to get anything done, and does that several times. Uh, he seems to respond to North Korea by threatening nuclear war, tell, tells Guam, which is where the big military base is, that it will benefit from tourism if there is any big attack. Uh, the chief strategist, Steve Bannon, contradicts the president, saying there is no military option in North Korea, and then the president threatens Venezuela with a military option. After a neo-Nazi rally in which a woman was killed, the president blames both sides. After a backlash, he then says it uh, was white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, and the Ku Klux Klan. 
Crossett, having been forced to do this, he then winds it back again and says there were fine people on both sides. Uh, the military high command issue a statement condemning all forms of discrimination in a thinly veiled attack on the commander-in-chief. Um, he promotes his vi Virginia vineyard when asked if he will, as president, visit Charlottesville where the violence took place and gets condemnation from Democrats, Republicans, former presidents, world leaders, allies, his own staff and the Pope. Um, <laughs> he publicly shames company bosses who abandon him over Charlottesville and then there is a mass walkout by corporate America from the White House body looking after trade and investment and business in government. He does a U-turn on his policy on Afghanistan, commits more troops, having repeatedly said that he'd pull US forces out. He threatens to close down the government if he doesn't get funding for the border wall in Mexico, despite having said throughout the campaign, if I remember correctly, that Mexico was going to pay. Anyway, and that is four weeks. That is four exhausting weeks. I feel like I am a man who sees a fire hydrant and I'm trying to get my mouth over the aperture of that fire hydrant as it all comes uh, gushing at you. Um, it is a very challenging time to be a journalist as well, with the President repeatedly accusing us of uh, perpetrating fake news, uh, whereas... I think I've demonstrated uh, that maybe there has been some fake news, uh, whether it be about the size of his crowd on the inauguration, whether it be about the millions of people who voted illegally in the presidential election, which has never been proven, uh, the claims that uh, Barack Obama wiretapped Trump Tower, the claims that it was all got up by GCHQ. None of those things have ever been uh, proven. Uh, I'm going to end with a quote from Rahm Emanuel, who was the chief of staff... Um, to Barack Obama and is now the mayor of Chicago. He said, at the end of this, just a couple of weeks ago, he said, I am going to nominate this White House for a Tony Award for most drama. Not best drama, just most drama. <laughs> we are living in extraordinary times with an extraordinary president and hopefully this will shine a little bit of light on some of the craziness, and I can't think of another word, unorthodox things that are going on in the White House at the moment. Thank you. And I'm happy to open it up for as many questions as we've got time for. Thank you very much indeed. I'm going to take my Great. Very good. Uh, fascinating stuff. Now, I'm just going to uh, open the questioning with one, if I may. I mean, you've now uh, been a, as it were, a British... You know, the, in the sense, the person who most people in the UK learn most about American politics for a number of years, very important position, and you held an analogous one back in the UK looking at British politics. And so you will know more than anybody that uh, Donald Trump, despite everything, remains President of the United States. He is the leader of the most powerful countries, certainly in terms of uh, e economic and uh, military power in the world. And at some level, Britain, European countries more generally, live under an American umbrella. They live under a, a NATO umbrella alongside uh, US in, in NATO. And the UK government is now in a position where it is, to put it kindly, desperate to be seen to be striking trade deals and having friendly relations with this mercurial, let's use the kind word, character. So, and of course, the, the British government isn't that powerful in this relationship. So it's a complicated character on the other side of the Atlantic, a complicated government with weak leadership on this side of the Atlantic. How would you advise Theresa May 
to open out her relationship with Donald Trump? That's a great question. The, I mean, I, I think that if you look at the history of the special relationship and the way prime ministers have reacted, and it, it's very difficult. As a, I mean, it's the Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Mm. That you know, too hot, Tony Blair and George W. Bush, too cold. Uh, Barack Obama and Gordon Brown, a famous occasion where Gordon Brown was begging for a bilateral. Gordon Brown's popularity was sinking, and he begged to have a meeting with Barack Obama, who was still riding high. And it ended up that uh, Gordon Brown literally chased Barack Obama around the kitchens of the United Nations as Barack Obama was being led out of the UN by his Secret Service detail. Uh, That's too cold. I think David Cameron tried to get the temperature right and saying, look, we know we're a junior partner in this relationship. I thought... If you want an encapsulation of the special relationship, and I write about it, is is Theresa May's first visit to Washington. She becomes the first foreign leader in to see Donald Trump after he's moved into the White House. At the British Embassy and in the Foreign Office and in Downing Street, they are high-fiving each other, saying... The special relationship, it means something. We are the first through the door. We've got in first. You've then got that bit of symbolism where Theresa May and Donald Trump are walking through the Rose Garden. There's a little bit of a ramp. Donald Trump unsteadily reaches out to hold Theresa May's hand. Britain, the stalwart ally, steadying this new president. That was the symbolism. They loved every single second of it. And they drive at the end of the day from the White House to Joint Base Andrews in Maryland uh, for Theresa May to catch the plane to Ankara, and they're just giddy. They're giddy with excitement. The door closes, the plane takes off, and Donald Trump announces the travel ban that would have banned Zadim Sahawi, the, uh, the Tory MP, uh, from ever being able to visit the United States again because he'd been born in Baghdad. So Mo Farah wouldn't have been able to go back to his training camp. There was an absolute hue and cry, and before you know it, she's offered a state visit to Donald Trump, and you've got a million and a half people signing a petition saying, you must be joking. And that is what, and I thought it was a kind of perfect encapsulation of the trickiness of managing the special relationship with the United States. I am firmly of the belief that the United States has interests rather than friendships. And although Donald Trump is very, very pro-Brexit and very supportive of Britain leaving the EU, when it comes to a trade deal, who needs the trade deal most? Hmm. Donald Trump or Theresa May? And we have a deficit, trade deficit, and they have a trade deficit with the UK. And if you have got, you know, Theresa May saying, I'm sorry, Donald, mm. I presume, I'm, or Mr. Trump, Mr. President, I don't know, um, we're not going to take your chlorinated chickens, <laughs> I think Donald's going to say, yes, you are. Um, <laughs> and I think, that, I think it's complicated. And I think that, you know, and one of the things that I have learned from being there is that We obsess about the special relationship. Americans don't mention it. It's not on their kind of radar. Now, within government, within the intelligence services, it's absolutely true that there is a a very, very close relationship between GCHQ, between the CIA, between the FBI, between the various intelligence agencies, the Five Eyes Agreement that it takes in Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand, UK, and the US. That is very close. That's very, very real. Indeed, but don't ever mistake it for being love. And I, I, one other story, I, I remember playing 
I was invited to play tennis um, with the US ambassador, and he had a very senior person from the White House there, and was laying it on in no uncertain terms that there would be huge trouble if Britain didn't pony up and spend 2% of its GDP on defence and left uh, the British ambassador in absolutely... I mean, I couldn't report that at the time. Um, Actually, can I tell one very quick story against myself? It was the first time I'd been invited to play tennis at the British Embassy. It is magnificent residence. And, And my phone rang, and I saw it was my daughter who lives in London... And I just, I, and this conversation was starting to unfold with the, this guy from the White House giving the ambassador hell. And I said, hi, darling, are you okay? And all I could hear at the other end was, <laughs> and she, I said, what's happened? She said, I've just crashed the car. I said, are you hurt? And she said, no. I said, fine, I'll call you later. <laughs> it wasn't the finest example of parenting <laughs> that you could have had. Sorry. Very good, John. Okay. Let's take uh, some uh, questions. I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions. Uh, and we'll take t- two or three at a time. So I'll take a couple there. I've got the first three hands I can see are two there, and then one here. It's a statement in three. Can Trump last a full term? Trump last a full term. Yeah. Very good. Short, good and short. Very good. Yeah, I love questions like that. It's, it's a similar question. If uh, Donald Trump were run to, to the election next month, would he win? And the, uh, the second question, do you expect that you would be prevented from entering the White House one day? Okay. Okay, and over here, I'll come to you. Thank you. Um, although you say politicians in America cannot do well unless she or he embraces God, I remember Bernie Sanders did remarkably well without God. And I was wondering how you can explain so many of Bernie Sanders' supporters switched not to Hillary Clinton but to Donald Trump. Okay, that's a great question. Right. Uh, I, you, you, the BBC, you learn as a BBC correspondent not to stick your neck out because it's going to get chopped off. Uh, but I'm now going to stick my neck out. Uh, I think, as things currently stand, there is more chance of Donald Trump not only serving a full term but winning a re-election and serving a second term than there is of him being impeached. And that's a very bold statement, and let me expand on it slightly. Uh, The stock market is doing fabulously well in the United States of America, and a lot of people are putting that down to the change in atmosphere that Donald Trump has brought. Uh, He has appointed someone to the Supreme Court that is very much to the taste of conservatives and Republicans who wanted to see that sort of change because the Supreme Court plays such a huge role in this kind of social mores of American life and he has achieved that. Um, I think that Donald Trump may or may not get his legislation through on infrastructure, on health care reform. I talked about health care uh, where he's failed so far. Um, there's a great story of Thatcher and uh, Dennis, that Tristan Garrell Jones, who used to be the deputy chief whip, told me of how he would go up occasionally to the Downing Street flat above number 10, and they would be watching the news, and they'd be saying, can you believe what the government has done? (laughs) And I think that Donald Trump has a unique ability to run against his own administration. And I don't think you should underestimate that, that if things don't happen, if he doesn't get infrastructure reform, if the travel ban doesn't come in the way he wants it, if the wall isn't built with Mexico, if the, if the travel ban of Muslims is watered down, he'll blame the courts, he'll blame us, the media, he will blame the Capitol Hill, he will blame the swamp. And his, and his you know, the, so say, say the transgender ban. 
and we don't know quite how that will unfold. But say it doesn't quite happen in the way that he wants it to. Well, his base is going to think, you tried. You were our man. You did those things for us. We don't know whether the young dreamers, as they call them, the kind of immigrants who came in from Mexico when they were young children, brought in illegally by their parents, given a sort of partial amnesty under Obama, we don't know whether they'll be sent back or not yet. But if they're not, his base will still think, you were our man, you tried to make it happen. And so I think that there's a fair chance that Donald Trump will succeed whether he fails or wins, if you see what I mean. And so I think that people who are writing him off... And, you know, impeachment is a complicated process. I mean, no one has been driven out of office by impeachment. Impeachment means that it ends up... that The House of Representatives will vote for it, and then it becomes a trial in the Senate where you need to pass a two-thirds majority as, as the prosecuting body. And it's never happened in, you know, Nixon went before it got to that point. Obama, um, Clinton was impeached uh, by the House, but it never got to the Senate. So I kind of still think that the, the, the tectonic plates in American politics would have to shift massively for Trump to be impeached. And that's why. I, so I think that answers the sort of first two questions about whether he'll serve a full term. I think there's no reason to think that he won't. Unless he chooses. I mean, I kind of, I'm almost surprised by nothing now in the US. It, everything is so unorthodox. And you kind of do years of being a political journalist and you think, I kind of figured out what works and what you can say and what you can't say. There were so many times during the uh, run up to the election where you thought, well, that's it, he's done now. You know, insulting John McCain not being a war hero, I like my war heroes not to be captured. You know, he was a prisoner of war. And he insulted a kind of venerated American senator. Um, and then there was the Access Hollywood tapes where I don't need to go over uh, some of the rather disobliging things he had to say about women and what he would be able to do to them because he was in a position of power and what he would like to do to them. Um, you thought that would surely sink him. No, 53% of white college-educated women voted for Donald Trump. There was an unbelievable feeling, desire for change, and that is what American people voted for. Um, the question about Bernie Sanders. Actually, he did talk about faith and religion because and, he knew that he had to. In Iowa and New Hampshire, he did. He talked about Judaism and faith, but in a very much more general terms. But he knew he had to nod to that question. And he couldn't totally ignore it. And it was interesting because it was actually quite painful uh, listening to him tr because you know that... I, I got the impression watching him that religion, faith, did not play a big part in his life. Um, but he still felt he had to nod to that because there are enough you know, people who are religious that would think that... You know, if, you look at, if you look at Pew Research polling on atheists in America, they're about the same ranking as child molesters. And, and I'm not, that's not me being flippant and rhetorical. That is literal. I mean, the, the figures are absolutely staggering uh, for that. Why the Bernie Sanders supporters uh, went from... They loathed Hillary Clinton. And there was misogyny. Uh, she's shrill. She's manipulative. She's ambitious. Unlike, of course, any men who were running for the presidency. Um, she didn't have a clear message. She didn't seem to know what she wanted to do. And there was a lot on the sort of broadly nationalist agenda where Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump weren't that far apart. And if you look at some of the speeches, 
and I, I use passages of them in the book, you'll, you'll struggle to work out which was Donald Trump and which was Bernie Sanders. About, uh, you know, we've got, to, we've got to hit companies that offshore their jobs. We've got to put up tariffs to make it more difficult for people to bring cheap goods into the American market. They're on the same page there. So there were certain areas where Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were at one, and it didn't surprise me that people made the jump because Hillary Clinton just seemed to represent the establishment. Very good. Right. Uh, there's one there. Let's take a couple of questions a bit further back this time. Be fair. I'll come back to the front of the audience. Anybody at the back? Are we not doing up? the cheap seats? Yeah, we're, we're going to do. I'm going to do some at the back. Yes, there's uh, one there. So up there, one there, and then a guy on the right by the wall there. Okay, sir. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit more? Could, right. Could you tell us a little bit more about the relationship which the president has with Congress? Because he spent most of the summer being thoroughly rude about Mitch McConnell um, and Paul Ryan, and in the last 24 hours, some form of political footsie with the Democrats. Is he likely to get anything through the Congress? Right. And then there were two here. One there. One there. Uh, hi. Um, I'm actually visiting from San Francisco. Um, hi, welcome. Hi. Uh, so I'm relatively protected in San Francisco, being I'm a uh, I'm a queer kid. Um, so how do you see, like, generally America's uh, like erosion of civil rights amongst uh, you know queer people of color, um, queer people and or uh, immigrants in the United States? Minority rights. Yep. Very good. And the chap by the wall. I'm sorry to describe you in that rather. Architectural way, but it's. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Well, I got two full questions. Um, the first one is, you know, you said that um, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, they, you know, they share some of the views on, say, economic policies. But don't you think that in these eight months, he has, uh, in a certain way, widened the gap between rich and poor? For example trying to block social uh, laws, progressive laws, as Obamacare. So um, basically it's continuing the old neocon right-wing uh, political um, economic um, laws. And also the other thing is, do you think he's going to attack North Korea? It's <laughs> another short but easy to answer question. Right, I'm going, to, I'm going to rattle through them because they're great questions. Um, the, glib quest, the glib answer to your last question is, geez, this book would have been a waste of time and energy if we just nuclear vaporises us, wouldn't it? I mean, why would I have gone to all that effort? Uh, I don't know. I think North Korea is pretty scary, and I think that you have got... You know, I, 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 I flew back uh, at the weekend... And rather than going home and having a sleep, I was called straight into a new broadcasting house to go on the news and talk about what Donald Trump had, what had happened with this new hydrogen test. I mean, what has happened is that the, the undoubtedly previous leaders have been kicking the can down the road, have not kind of dealt with the North Korean problem, or have tried to, but they haven't been able to get the buy-in from China. Donald Trump came in and said the era of strategic patience is over. Maybe there are back-channel conversations going on about which we know nothing. Maybe the Chinese are putting the pressure on North Korea that hasn't been seen before. But what we have at the moment is we have a North Korea whose nuclear capability is accelerating 
at a rate that people did not think was be possible and that they are developing the miniaturisation techniques that they could put a nuclear weapon on an intercontinental ballistic missile making the United States within reach. And that is a game changer. And you also have a president who says the time for talking is over. That is not a happy combination. So that's, I mean, you know, I think North Korea, potentially scary. And I also think that there is the, the huge potential for miscalculation or for someone to misread something that someone says. And it's quite interesting that after Donald Trump's initial reaction, he has, he's been on Twitter. He hasn't said anything about North Korea since then. And I think that also underlines to me that the situation is pretty serious, that he's not tweeting about it. Um, widen the gap between rich and poor? We don't know yet. Let's see what the tax reform proposals are when they come through. Uh, and actually there are, within this White House, there is Wall Street and there is Main Street. And the sort of, although Steve Bannon has now left uh, the White House, his influence is still felt. And the populist agenda is you've got to make the rich pay more for their taxes, whereas the kind of plutocrats from Wall Street, the Steve Mnuchins from Goldman Sachs, the Dina Powell from a similar background, the Gary Cohen, who's the head of the Economic Council, um, their view is, of course, you want to be lowering the burden of taxation very much more so, which probably would widen the gap. But Donald Trump he says he's there for blue-collar America and his simplification of the tax code, but we just haven't seen the details, so I can't give you a really detailed answer on whether it will or it won't. There is a battle going on over what the uh, tax policy should be. Um, again, um, with regard to minorities and being a minority and what it's going to be like in America, I suspect if you are a minority, you are going to feel more edgy, more concerned, worried than maybe you were under the previous administration. And you know, the culture wars have raged in America for 30 or 40 years now, and, they have, and it seemed like they were going decisively in one direction. And you, what you know about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump is that they seem very comfortable with carrying on the Obama legacy. As I said, as I said in the kind of previous answer, that you know, the, the bark is worse than the bite. You know, Donald Trump is often playing up to his base in saying certain things. So when he's banning transgender individuals from the military, that's going down very well with the, you know, the white, elder, male, less, less educated person who was his base during the election. So I think it's probably more discomforting than it will be translated into reality. I don't see a big rowing back on legislation Yet, I think there'll be a lot of huffing and puffing to please the base, and then not that much will change, except the people who are from a minority. And I would imagine if you are a young Mexican kid who has come out of the shadows, who has given you the state your address and where you live, and so that you're now paying taxes, uh, you're going to feel anxious that you could be kicked out at any time. And, you know, ICE, the, kind of the, 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 pe the border control people... They have been kicking a lot more people out. So, you know, I'm sure a lot more people will be feeling more uneasy and, and the polling suggests that that will still be very popular uh, with Donald Trump's base. Uh, is he likely to get anything done? I think it's such an interesting question and what's happened in the... I mean, in the last day or two that Donald Trump has gone straight to the Democrats and said, well, maybe, 
you, you give us a bit of support uh, after Harvey uh, to help rebuild and we'll put some extra money in a funding bill that will keep the government open. Maybe we're wrong in thinking that there's a Republican Party and a Democratic Party. Maybe what we should be thinking is that there's a Republican Party, a Democratic Party and the Trump Party. And Trump really doesn't give much of a damn who he does business with and feels absolutely no loyalty to Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, or Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House. And they have been disobliging to him. And Donald Trump, we know, is a man, if you are disobliging to him, he will be equally cantankerous back to you. And he likes a fight, and he's clearly furious with uh, Mitch McConnell for having failed over health reform. He's clearly furious uh, with Ryan over some of the things that Paul Ryan has said over Charlottesville, over the pardon given to this, uh, the kind of uh, Arizona governor, Joe Arpaio, the, um, the sheriff. Um, and Donald Trump is taking his revenge. And he doesn't care how he gets it done. And I think, will there be a Republican backlash? Well, you're seeing some Republican senators saying this is awful. The base... I bet they'll think he's just trying to get things done and he's doing it however he can. And I, so I think it will be quite popular what he's just done with the Democrats because I think it's pretty clever politics. I don't need the Republican Party. The Republican Party can go whistle. He's not a Republican. He's, you know, he's a negotiator. He wants to do deals. He said so. Okay. Now there's a... Yep. One there. Um, and guy here. I'm glad I've got a note another Woman, I think, uh, on the edge, on the end of the row there. So one, two, oh, and three. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, American journalists, and I'm one of them, we're having this existential crisis where we've realized that half of the public that we're supposed to be serving doesn't believe us. It seems to me that you're in a different position, and am, am I right about that? If so, is that something you think about? How does that feel? Is it wonderful? Do you mean Did you hear the exchange I had with Donald Trump? <laughs> Weren't you listening? I don't think he loves it. Anyway, no, we'll come but back. Do you, you mean that, John, uh, in Britain, people in Britain, more than... Uh, yeah, I don't All right, know, okay, okay. okay. Uh, it's a doubt. really interesting point. Okay. Um, then, I might be a bit long-winded in my answer on this one. I, then the, it's a hobby then horse. Um, one, one of the stories that uh, you, you haven't mentioned, which seems to have slipped off the radar, is this uh, meeting between uh, Kushner and the, um, the Russians about uh, the, uh, the having, having some uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton. And, and that seemed to be all over the, the British newspapers. I'm not sure what happened in, uh, in America. And that, yet this was some weeks ago, and that seemed to have slipped off the radar. I just wondered what your thoughts were about okay. some of these stories in connection with the, the Russians. Right. And then, yes. Um, clearly, Hillary, Trump, and Bernie are all very old. Who do you see as potentially the future of American politics from both parties? <laughs> you can be old and win young votes these days. We know yeah, that in Britain okay. and America. Um, the journalism question is fascinating. So at the end of Trump's... Uh, are you based over here? Or are you? Um, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know whether you saw it, but Trump gave this... Uh, a, I'm going to overuse this word because the adjectives I want to use I probably can't. Uh, but he gave this extraordinary speech in Phoenix, Arizona uh, the other night at this rally um, where he lambasted us, the media, for 20 minutes during this speech. 20 minutes. He's 
about how dishonest. I've got to tell you, when we're covering one of his rallies, and I covered dozens of them during the campaign, you're standing on a, you know, I'm, for a minute I'm Donald Trump, and the press are lined up at the back, and you know there's one point in the speech where Donald Trump is going to go, look at those people up there. Have you ever seen such a group of more dishonest, deceitful people, fake news, they make it up, it's all rubbish, they're dishonest people, they should be ashamed of themselves. And you've got 15,000 people facing you with hostility and anger. And by the end of the, uh, the, end of the campaign, we had police protection on the press risers to stop us being attacked. I mean, it was extraordinary. So, broadly speaking, it's not nice. But Donald Trump, <laughs> but Donald Trump wants to have an enemy. Now, my view on journalism is that we are there to speak truth to power, to hold power to account. It's not my first job to try and bring down the administration. If that is a byproduct of the journalism that we do, so be it. It happened after Watergate. It happened with the Washington Post inquiry. But after the end of this rally that Trump gave in Phoenix, Arizona, on CNN, they cut back to the presenter and he said... That was unhinged. What an embarrassment to have him as the President of the United States of America. I'm fine. Bring guests on who want to say that. Let us not be the people. If we want trust, let us continue to report fairly and calmly and rationally. And, you know, the clip I showed of the press conference in the White House... And I, I kind of thought, if I get called, I've got to be aware that this could get, it could get feisty, and how am I going to handle it if it does get feisty? And I thought, you know what? I want to be polite mm. and calm and measured in tone, and I think that some parts of the American media are falling into the Trump trap of behaving like the opposition, and that allows him to say fake news, they're just trying to bring me down. If you really want to f- feel the truth, just look at my Twitter account, never read the sad New York Times, the Washington Post, <laughs> you know, fair. Uh, um, because, you know, that, because if you want truth, just listen to me. And I think we've got to be very careful. I think we've got to continue. I mean, you know, I would proselytise with the BBC. Actually, I think there's a great opportunity for old, good old-fashioned journalism that is fair, that is balanced, because the other great threat is not just the distrust of uh, the people, it is the fake news that is awash on social media, which we saw during the campaign, sometimes with you know, very awful consequences. Uh, Kushner and the Russians, that's still going on. That is a slow burn. Why don't we hear about it every day? Because I gave you the list. Every day. We, I have got permanent attention deficit disorder. I am changing subjects so fast. Well, you suddenly think, oh, my God, OK, I was looking over here and suddenly I'm looking over there. Oh, it's North Korea today, oh, it's Russia tomorrow. It, you know, um, I think the Russia investigation, I do not think that they're going to find that the Russian Secret Service were regularly acting as the research department for the Trump campaign. I do think it's very strange that if you think of all the people that Trump has been abusive to, he's never said a word against Vladimir Putin, uh, I do think there are very odd, various oddnesses about money, business, deals that haven't come to the bottom. We haven't got to the bottom. I am happy that Robert Mueller, uh, the special counsel, carry on his investigation and let's see where that leads. And all I'd say is that, you know, Watergate 
burnt very, very slowly indeed. The Star Inquiry into Bill Clinton started off as a property deal called Whitewater, and it became about Monica Lewinsky and a blue dress and perjury. So these things evolve, and I think that in a news cycle which is breathless, where we're changing the, sub- the topic and the subject every five minutes, uh, this is going to be slow, detailed work, and I still think there are a lot of unanswered questions remaining. That doesn't mean that the media has forgotten about it. Right, time for another round. Uh, here and here. Take two here, and let's take somebody right at the back, the very back by the door. Sorry, I'm, 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 I'm architecture again. Sorry about that. Um, I'm quite interested in the role that Ivanka is playing and Melania. I know, how do you see they, their role in this strange regime? The family. I don't think we can quite call it a regime yet. <laughs> I mean, it was democratically elected. <laughs> yes, I think. Um, how well do you think uh, Trump has dealt with Hurricane Harvey in comparison to how previous presidents have dealt with hurricanes and disasters during their leaderships? Okay. And way down the right. Um, so uh, we've got the midterms at the end of 2018. And uh, we've seen Trump's popularity sort of dropping steadily given recent events. Um, at what point do you sort of see the Republican Party start to abandon him? And I guess how do you see the 2018 midterms playing out? I can't even see where you are. Where, where right you? at the very back. Oh, right. Oh, hi. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, sorry. I was... Um, right. Melania, I think, is playing a much more backseat role, although I think she has considerable influence over him and trying to control his behaviour and what he does and I think that you know, there have been odd moments glimpses that we've seen where she's you know, kind of, I mean I, I went to cover the trip to the Middle East uh, when he got off the plane in Israel and, and uh, the Netanyahu's were holding hands and he suddenly reaches out and she goes I like that. <laughs> that's telling uh, Ivanka plays a much bigger role, and it's an interesting one, and I, you know, I can't... I mean, two versions of it. One is that she is uh, very unhappy with some of the things that her father has done, Paris climate change deal being one of them, uh, you know, transgender, gay rights being potentially another. Or maybe that is just... She's very, very good at shoring up the female base, and I talked about the 53% of white college-educated women who voted for him, that she's the reassuring voice uh, that makes people feel, oh, well, thank goodness Ivanka's there. And I think that we've got to wait a bit to cast judgment on to see what her real influence is going to be uh, in the White House. I also went to the, um, the G20 in Hamburg, where Donald Trump kind of doesn't turn up for a meeting, and Ivanka Trump takes his place at the table and you think that's a pretty unusual family dynastic, you know, it's like the family boardroom uh, rather than the leader of the free world. So, I mean, I think that's a really interesting one uh, to watch. Hurricane Harvey, he acquitted himself really well. I think he did what Americans wanted to see done. He was muscular, they were quick, they were on the ground quickly. I mean, I think there was bits of it where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So, He didn't go to the worst affected areas and people said, oh, you know, 
He's just going there for show. Well, if he had gone to the worst affected areas, people would then have accused him of being, you know, disrupting and, uh, and taking resources away from the emergency rescue operation that was still going on. And so there were people who had a go at him over that. But it looks to me that compared... And I, as I say, I covered Hurricane Katrina uh, 12 years ago. I can't tell you how terrible Hurricane Katrina was and what happened and the people who were left behind, who were almost uniformly black. There were bodies on the streets that weren't picked up. I'd covered the tsunami in Sri Lanka about nine months earlier. The, author- the, the, the authorities of a third world country did better than America did over Hurricane Katrina. So I think that he's acquitted himself uh, very well. Yeah, did he say some things that were typically Trumpian, like, hey, what a great crowd, when he was outside the fire station, when all these people have just lost their homes? Yeah, maybe that wasn't as well judged as it could have been, but it was Donald Trump being Donald Trump. And, you know, I kind of think that the... the I, I, and again, this goes back to the question about how the journalists, you know, sometimes they go, oh, God. And I do think that America... And this is where I'm going to say, you know, thank God for British journalism, thank God for the broadcasting we've got here in this country, is that it tends to be fair and balanced. And people will hear a range of views. And I think in America, increasingly, people tune into things that reinforce prejudice, not to hear their own worldview challenge. So I think Donald Trump did very well uh, on Hurricane Harvey. Uh, Midterms, of course, if there is suddenly an inflection point, nothing concentrates the mind of a congressman or woman or a senator than the thought that they may be about to be kicked out and lose their job. And if they suddenly feel that Donald Trump is a disaster area uh, for them, then they might suddenly turn against him and that would be a very dangerous moment uh, for Donald Trump. But at the moment, they are more scared because of the process. So Jeff Flake, who is the uh, Arizona senator who has uh, been very critical of Donald Trump, well... Donald Trump is suggesting that maybe the Republican Party ought to primary him, i.e. put someone up to run in a primary against him who will be more loyal to the president. And that would be Donald Trump giving a very kind of good old-fashioned lesson, uh, like mafia bosses tend to do, although obviously I'm not drawing any parallels. God forbid. I mean, I would hate it. No, no, I'm, I'm seriously not. That, uh, there are parallels with that. But, you know, Donald Trump will want to punish those who step out of line. And going back to the question we had earlier about working, you know, he is punishing Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell for what they've said over the summer in working with the Democrats. And if people move against Donald Trump too soon, the danger is that he will move against them. And so they will be weighing that. It won't have anything to do with policies, ideology or beliefs. It will be to do with whether they're going to keep their jobs or lose their jobs. I think it will be basically existential. OK, I'm going to take one round of quick questions because we, we got to finish at 7.30. So, uh, uh, and I'm pointing at somebody who hasn't got their hand up. I'm making it slow now. One hand over here and one white shirt there and a lady here in the blue top. Describe your clothing this time rather than the chair. Sorry. Right, quick questions. The quick fire round. Um, do you like Donald Trump? <laughs> Oh, yes, the third question. Sorry, I'm on that chair here, yes. You've got a microphone. Uh, Where where do you think his thinking really is on climate change? And actually, I did promise the... Just pass it back and... That's exactly. Thank you. 
Oh, right, okay, fair point. Sorry, yes. You'd be a good interviewer. <laughs> you haven't answered my question. A better chair, anyway, that's yeah. for sure. Right. Um, do you think you get a bit more free reign being from England and the questions you can ask um, Donald Trump like American um, journalists do with, say, Boris Johnson, for example, that particular John Kerry interview that they really went for the throat? Do you think um, you can have a bit more scope? Okay. Um, if I didn't have Donald Trump, I'd have a, probably you know, a book that wouldn't have generated much interest. If I didn't have Donald Trump, I wouldn't be on the news every night. Donald Trump has been a gift that keeps on giving. Um, that, is, that is, as they say, the answer to a different question. Do you like him? Uh, I don't know him well enough to comment. Uh, very good, very good. Um, good interviewee. Yeah, exactly. Now, I haven't spent my life interviewing politicians without knowing how to um, elide certain questions. Uh, I mean, I, I tell you what I do like, and I, I really mean this sincerely, is that for so often in politics, we have no real idea. I mean, do we know what Theresa May really thinks? We do know what Donald Trump thinks. We, on, a, on, a, on a transparency basis, I mean, whether this makes for good government or not is a separate question. I love his Twitter account. It is authentic. It is real. It is from the heart. It is sometimes slightly unusual. Uh, and I think there is an honesty, and I think that people... And I think that part of the reason that his base is staying with him is that they feel he's human. They're engaging with him on some of the things that, you know, kind of he's hot under the collar about, and he lets rip. So that is what I really, really like about Donald Trump. Uh, Climate change. uh, I'm told that what happened at the G7 was there was going to be this kind of pincer movement that everyone would try and say, look, this is why you've got to accept Paris. And I think the other leaders in the room found that Donald Trump wasn't that well briefed on on the subject, but he has a series of views that uh, are based on kind of just instinct and not necessarily backed by evidence. And I don't think there is going to be much progress made uh, on that particular uh, issue um, as things stand. I, you know, he just thinks that it's, he's got, it's like his worldview on trade deals, that, that, that everyone's laughing at America, America has been ripped off, and he takes a similar view on the climate change Paris deal. It's just a rip-off to America... Everyone else is getting away with it, but America is forced to pay. This is bad for America. And, and it's hard to move uh, the discussion in detail uh, beyond that. Um, I've, I, OK, the, I'm going to go back to the young leaders. There are young leaders that are coming up. But, I mean, the, I, 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 you know, I mean, there are people... So on the Democrat side, there are one or two of the state governors who, the governor of Rhode Island, she's not that young, but she's doing pretty well. She's not, you know, in her late 60s, um, who is doing well. The, the mayor of New Orleans, Mitchell Andrew, has is, seemed to, you know, reaches across. He is white, but seemed to have done a good job with African-Americans in, in New Orleans and rebuilding after Hurricane Katrina. You know, he's an outsider that people should look at. And there are some, you know, there are some young Republican senators who are looking at themselves in the mirror each morning when they're shaving and saying... Yeah, I could be president too. And, you know, kind of uh, Ben Sass is one to watch out. I mean, Jeff Flake, the independent-minded uh, senator from Nebraska, uh, is another. There are some very good uh, young senators who are kind of quite dynamic. Um, but, I mean, this far out, trying to second-guess who is going to be the next president. You know, we saw 17 people run in the Republican field, kind of, you know, uh, and 
No one. No one thought that Donald Trump would be in the race for six weeks. He was in for six weeks. No one thought he could win the Republican nomination. And then no one thought he could win the presidency. I, I mean, what I think would be really interesting is not who are the young senators and congressmen and women. Who are the young independents? Is it Mark Zuckerberg who's going to be running for the Democrats? Is it going to be George Clooney who's going to run? I mean, I'm, you know, there, is, it, is it going to be the head of one of the big global banks who suddenly thinks, actually, I, I could do this. You don't need to be a politician anymore to become the next president. And so you're seeing a lot of very unconventional people suddenly thinking, Maybe I ought to be doing a bit of polling and just seeing how popular I am. And, you know, maybe it would be a good time to spend a week in Iowa and New Hampshire to see how it's going to go. <laughs> Seriously, that is what is happening at the moment. Very unconventional people. And I have lost what the last question was. Uh, I've, I've completely... F- mm, oh, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, can they be more candid? Um, sorry. Uh, I think that American journalism frustrates me slightly in that the interviews tend not to be, uh, shall we say, as maybe combative as they can be in the UK. And I think that's something to do with the fact that in America, I mean, in America, when Donald Trump or Barack Obama, whoever walks into the room, we all stand up because it's the head of state. And I found the same thing when I was Paris correspondent and Chirac was the president and I got immensely frustrated with French journalists not asking the head of state the questions in a way that, say, Paxman would or Humphreys would or Andrew Neil would. And I think that has something to do with the relative position of head of state as opposed to, you know, parliamentary leader, which is what we have in this country. Um, we certainly take more licence as British journalists when we do interviews, uh, and they tend to be quite feisty exchanges, but they can often be the reason why we don't get interviews, because American politicians say... Why do I want to be beaten up by that limey? And they do kind of, there is a bit of that that still is around. And I suppose that the Prime Minister's question time. Yeah. For, I mean, in a sense. There's the, no, there is no equivalent. There, there is no equivalent in American politics. The combative nature of the House of Commons sort of encourages that kind of behaviour yeah. among journalists as well as among politicians, you have to say. Don't you? Absolutely. I completely agree. We must finish with John's on a tight timetable. Just one, without saying whether Trump's good or bad or Brexit's good or bad, which do you think will have more effect on the respective country in the long term? Brexit. Brexit, I think, is a decision for life. Right. I don't, I don't, I mean, you know, assuming, and and this is not a a comment of good or bad for Brexit, but I just think it will, uh, but I think it will have a decisive effect on Britain's relationship with Europe, about uh, movement of people, about trade relationships, uh, about the unwinding of all these laws that have been European laws but now have to be reincorporated. So I think just in terms of the magnitude, Donald Trump is potentially for four years. He may be for eight years. But then his two terms will be up and it will be up to the American people to decide. Uh, And, you know, people who counsel that this is the end of American democracy, and I think that's overblown. I think that's windy. I think there are threats, certainly. But I think that actually the U.S. Constitution, with this balance of powers between the judiciary and the uh, legislature and the executive, has shown itself to be fairly robust. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't don't want you to move immediately because John and I are going to rush up there to a pile of books, which I would encourage you to uh, go and buy. Yes, uh, absolutely. Well said. No, no, I'm, I'm sadly not on a retainer. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but before uh, we do that, I'd just like to thank you all for coming and to uh, thank John for so entertaining you. <laughs>